Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. From autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. We were delighted to say yesterday on autosport.com and in the magazine as well that the recent Super Touring Power event at Brands Hatch, a celebration of the golden era of tin-top racing, will return. It's the news that many people were delighted to hear. Returns to Brands Hatch in 2024. The event a couple of weeks ago was a hit with fans and attracted several stars like Paul Radisic, Greg Murphy, Stephen Richards, Jake Hill, current frontrunner in the British Touring Cars, won the Super Tourers races in his uh, Nissan Premier was driving. Now, the event next year will be scheduled for 29th and 30th of June. We'll race on both the Grand Prix and Indy layouts at Brands. A new addition next year will be a Group A race featuring the Sierra Cosworths, the, the RS500s, the BMW M3E30s, those 1980s era beasts as well. Well, the event this year was not just about super touring. The CTCRC's other series traced the history of Tin Tops back to the start, uh, pre-1966. The event had on-track demonstrations and, and displays of super tourers and other really impressive vehicles. I just stood for ages staring at Alain Menu's 97 British Touring Car Championship winning Renault Laguna. These vehicles, which at the time were very, very high-tech, known for their sophistication, but also high cost. So the the private owners often who still run these cars and, and own them were doing such a, a, a massive thing for all of us fans who were there at Brands Hatch to see 
Just some fantastic track action. Delighted to say it will return. We will see you there in 2024. And we had the Autosport stage at Brands Hatch with uh, Marcus Simmons was on there, Kevin Turner, our chief editor, and Tom Howard, who did a lot of the work to put this event together, interviewing many of the stars who turned up. I mentioned Paul Radisich, uh, Anthony Reid, Stephen Richards, Andy Rouse, Steve Soper, Patrick Watts, and many more were there. We were on stage with, at the beginning of Saturday, Alain Menu and Tim Harvey. We had three Drivers' Championships on the stage at once. It was wonderful, along with our man Marcus Simmons and Tom Howard asking the questions. We'll bring you a recording of that right now so you can hear what they were talking about. It's just such a brilliant insight if you love touring cars. And Tom started off by talking to Alain Menu about what it was like to be back at Super Touring Power. Honestly, you know, when I turned up, like, uh, which was probably now what, half an hour ago, my 97 car was running. So the driver was in it and the engine was running. And just like to see it and to hear it, I have to admit, uh, I was a bit emotional. You know, it's just, wish I was driving it. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a, an amazing period, isn't it? Is it nice to see that, you know, there's still a lot of love for the Super 2 and era as we see the crowd today? Yes, uh, I'm impressed, but there is one thing though. I, I, you know, I came here and I was, uh, I was all happy and like, um, you know, in a good mood. But so many people have told me, "Oh, you, you are my childhood hero." So, <laughs> so now I feel like an old. <laughs> I feel like an old guy. Not really uh, joking apart. It's, uh, it's very nice to see, uh, to see everybody and to be back here. And, and Prince Arch also is. Uh, is, uh, I've got like nice memories uh, from from Prince Arch. You know, I, I won quite a few races and around here and I used to live nearby also so it's uh, it's nice to be back. And you, you've mentioned your 1997 Renault Laguna it, it was a it was a season of domination for you really wasn't it um, back back in those days of course the British Touring Car Championship didn't have success ballast it didn't have reverse grids or anything like that it was engineering driving the, the reward came didn't it from from excellence that year, the, you and the team were absolutely on it. We, we came off uh, 96, which was, uh, it was a good year for us, but uh, Frank Bila and the Audi were unbeatable. And we used to have also some issues with the engine uh, in 96. Uh, the engine was not quite reliable, so, so we, had a, we had a few problems. And we were also lacking a little bit with front-end grip, uh, so that was like the focus uh, during the winter, 96-97. And we, we had a test at uh, Jarama in Spain. Uh, with a new car, so that was the very first time we drove it, early 97. And uh, after two laps, I knew I had a car with which I could win a championship. It was like much, much better, a big improvement on 96. We started the season at uh, Donington uh, ready, ready to win. Then throughout the season, the car was not always uh, the best though, but some of the other drivers like uh, were making more mistakes than I did, I guess, and, and in the end, yeah turned out good and on, on the on the technical side of course you had um, the, the the main technical director of the Williams team in those days was John Russell who'd come from the Formula One team and your race engineer was Mark Ellis who went on to massive success with Red Bull in in Formula One I mean it was it was it was Formula One levels wasn't it um, back then yeah totally I mean you you name those two but but really everybody in the team at every level was uh, was excellent you know it was really and I don't mean that. Uh, I don't mean to be disrespectful for the other teams I, I worked with, but I think those years the Williams Renault team was really probably the best of uh, 
I've, I've driven for. And, and also Patrick Head was quite, uh, quite involved. You know, he would, he would come down to the factory once or twice a week um, just to, uh, you know, shout a bit. Um, <laughs> uh, keep everybody on their toes. Uh, but, but yeah, you're right, like John Russell, you know, Mark Ellis and, you know, Ian Harrison was the team manager in 96. <laughs> and uh, there is an old friend. Um, yeah, you know, that, that's the thing with motorsport, you know, without like a good team and a good car, then the driver is nothing. Um, so, so it was really, the whole package was that year, that year like really good, but it took, it took two years, you know, like 95, 96 for Williams to get to that level. Well, welcome, uh, Tim Harvey's now joined us. Um, I, I had to don't try. clap, don't clap, he's late. Alain doesn't even have a racing license anymore, so he can't get out there. So you, you leave it to us to do the driving, Alain, now, yeah? <laughs> I'll leave that to the young guys. Of course, you two were teammates at Renault in 93-94. Uh, Tim Harvey, what was Alan like as a teammate? Well, he took all the best engines, he took <laughs> all the best tyres. Uh, he spoke French, which I didn't, uh, so I had no chance really. It was a, a really bad move on my part to suggest he'd be a good teammate. I should have um, suggested someone much slower and lot much less politically inept. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, we, we actually we enjoyed the time together, but it was a difficult time at Renault. The start was very difficult um, with the first 19 and... Um, you know, Alan enjoyed the fruits of it when it went to Williams and obviously was hugely successful. But yeah, the first couple of years were difficult from the car performance point of view. But we got on fine. I, I think no, we, we I think we got on really well, Tim and I. But I think in hindsight, I didn't probably realize it at the time, but it would have been much more difficult for Tim because Tim came as a champion, driving uh, probably one of the best cars in uh, in the BMW 1992. And, and really, honestly, I think now we can say it like properly. The the the, the 19 was a shit box. Really, it was <laughs> it was not good. It was not good. It was really not good. But for me, it didn't matter because it was the first time I got paid to uh, to drive a racing car. So I was like delighted with this. I was not in it to like to win the championship. So for me, it was just like to show what I could do and getting paid to like uh, to to yeah. I was living off my passion. So. So it didn't matter as much to me that uh, the car was not competitive. But having said that, Tim won uh, the first race uh, for, for uh, Renault at uh, Donington. And then I won again both, both times uh, in a wet. So I, I won at the end of the year. So it was not such a bad year. But the team is right that then, you know, I was kept on the Williams years. And, and then it all came good. I mean, with the 19, you, you had a car that had originally been developed by a rally driver, didn't you? And Jean, Jean Ragnotti, who's deservedly a, a legend of French motorsport, but possi possibly from an older era and a different, different discipline. But when you got your hands on the Laguna for 94, I'm guessing that it was the two of you who were leading it. And how much of a relief was that to be able to develop a car yourselves for the, for the following season? Well, yeah, you're right. The first car was developed by Renault Sport in uh, Paris and it had a handbrake and standard pedals in it. And I thought they were joking when they, they showed us the car because I thought, well, you've really underestimated the job here. Um, suffice to say that, yeah, by the time we got the first Laguna, it was a much better car and it was a race winning car and things were developing at that point. But you know, clearly the, the politics behind the scenes had been, okay, we can't be in this to muck about. We, you know, we need to take an example of 
you know, what everyone else was doing in the mid-90s, and that was to throw a lot of money at it, and hence the reason to go to Williams, which was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, but, yeah, we did have a much better car, much in, in, the, in the Laguna, for sure. Yeah, you, could, you could actually be competitive in the dry in that car, whereas... The <laughs> <laughs> actually, the best thing I remember about Jean Ragnotti is he took us for that... Do you remember that amazing um, meal he took us through when we were testing at Nagaro? So we're testing at Nagara, and, and, and Jon Ragnotti was there. And he said, oh, I've, I've organized a dinner for us all. This is the whole team. So he took us off, everyone, mechanics, everything, to this um, private sort of dining um, restaurant, which was like a Swiss chalet in somebody's garden. Mm. And they provided all of the food, all of the booze, uh, no menu, but they did it all, and we just paid what we wanted to give. And it was the most amazing meal. I'll never forget it. There was all this foie gras coming out and the mechanics were slapping it between a couple of bread rolls and eating it like it was a burger. It, I'll never forget that. That was the best thing about Jean Ragnotti for me. <laughs> oh, that and his, and his 360 degree handbrake spins. He was pretty good at those as well. Like obviously, the, the ra well, a lot of people remember the racing being so furious. What was it like for you two racing against each other? Did you, do, you have any good, do you have any good battles you remember between you two? I'll just say one thing. I don't know if you saw, I, I put a thing, I was going through the fire a few years ago looking for something else actually to do with Porsche Super Cup and I found this letter from uh, Giles Butterfield who's the operations manager at MSV now and has been for years but he was one of the directors of MSV the, 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 the uh, Renault team and it was admonishing Alan and me for having had contact in one of the races and um, uh, he sent it to Alan as well the same letter and it, and it was quite a stern rebuke you know for this sort of behavior won't be tolerated and all this kind of thing it was unprofessional and all the rest of it well I can't even remember the incident and I rang Alan up and I said do you remember it and he said no I don't remember it either no that's a funny one yes because when you sent it I don't remember having ever got that letter so I don't know but I think I remember now actually it was Pembre, you know? Obviously, we were not competitive. We were probably fighting for 15th place. So either team or I, I don't know, 15, 16, and we, we did touch. And I don't know, it was nothing like major, but you know, there was, uh, some people were a bit unhappy uh, at the end of the race. I, I think that's what it was, to be honest. Was I think that's, that's the, the only pin? thing I remember. Was that when you drove into me at the hairpin? It could be. <laughs> it could I, I don't remember what happened, no, though. No. I'm going to go uh, with that. But but I know because if I drove into you at the hairpin, that, that means that you were in front of me, which was unlikely, you know? <laughs> so I don't know. But it's so a, it's a pity you got drowned out by the noise of that race just <laughs> then, wasn't it? <laughs> what I remember, like Tim and I, we, you know, we, we had a good time. And it's true that at times, uh, I don't think I was that political, to be honest, but I was quite happy when Tim, Tim was a senior driver. He was, like I said, he was a champion. So quite often I would let him go to the front and complain like the car is not good enough, you know this, we need to improve this, that, 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 that. So I was then made out to be the good guy, not complaining. Then that changed, that changed in the winter of 96, 97. Uh, then when Jason, uh, uh, you know, like Jason Plato uh, was my teammate, so that was his first year. And like I said, we were testing in Spain and there were some issues with the electronic on the car. Uh, again, I don't want to go into details, but some people wanted to have a certain like uh, make and I knew that didn't work, and we had issues with it. And because the car was competitive, I said to them, I was very strong. Nobody else at Williams was saying anything. You know, Mark Ellis, John Russell, they were not saying anything. And so it was a big meeting there in Spain, and I said, I'm sorry, guys, but we cannot run with that uh, ECU uh, thing. We cannot, because we're going to have uh, reliability issues, and we cannot afford it, because the car is competitive. 
And I did, uh, excuse my French, but I did piss a few people off by, by doing that because they followed my advice. So I know that when you go to the front and sometimes, you know, you have to be a bit forceful, you don't always make friends. But, but it was worth it in the end. I mean, it, yes, it was. Yeah, but, but you, had, um, yeah, you had Jason alongside you yeah, in 97, as you've said, and he was a rookie at the time, and he was um, quite quick and, and also quite, quite opinionated himself, I think. Yeah, he was, uh, he was very quick. Like, um, I mean, initially, he got like, the first uh, three, three poles. We, we had two qualifying sessions uh, every weekend, mm. and he got the two at Dunnington, and then, and then he got like, the first one at Silverstone the next uh, race weekend, the following race weekend. And I've never... I'm going to admit something here in front of everybody. I've never said it before. I was really, really cheesed off. <laughs> I didn't like it at all, at all. But I didn't want to like, I didn't want to show it. So I was pretending everything was fine. And to be honest, I won the first four races, so that's, that's what really mattered. But it did uh, give me a little kick up the, up the butt. And then I think I raised my game. So in, in a way, he shot himself in the foot a bit because then I thought, okay, you need to like really be be on the top of your game and uh, I think it did help you know in reality it did help me yeah. that he that he did beat me like the first uh, three points but I was I was really upset by this time Tim you'd gone via the TWR Volvo team into uh, the Peugeot team which um, it it was a difficult situation wasn't it it was it was tough for the team to make the car competitive on the circuits in the UK. Yeah, I mean, look, I'd, I'd enjoyed a year at TWR with mm. Volvo, and that was good fun. Um, and Peugeot came calling, and I thought, yeah, I've made another of my bad decisions in um, what to do. And uh, I went with, with Peugeot. And, and to be fair, the, you know, uh, the frustration for me was that Peugeot in Germany were winning everything with Laurent Aiello. So I assumed that there would be some carryover of information and, and equipment, and there was absolutely nothing. Um, it was Peugeot UK paying for engine development in the UK, for all of the chassis stuff. It was you know, an impossible task for you know, Peugeot UK Motorsport to take on factory teams, really, even though they were one, with much bigger budgets. So when we didn't, you know, we never got the crossover. I actually think that MSD and Peugeot did a pretty good job. You know, the, the cars, they were, they were pretty good, but we were, we're talking about tiny fractions, you know, that we were missing. Um, but uh, yeah, just didn't quite ever get to win a race. Yeah. Wasn't, um, wasn't it the case that the, the homologation of the car with, with the FIA was, was carried out completely by the French team who were running in the German series? And so really it was to suit those circuits in Germany where it was very long straights and tight corners. I mean, there were a lot of airfield tracks at the time as well with chicanes, weren't there? Not necessarily Brands Hatch Grand Prix or Alton Park or somewhere. No, like but in fairness, it was more about engine and everything else, you know, that, that would have worked very well here. Um, I don't believe that was the reason the car wasn't as competitive because it was a different homologation. It just, you know, it was just we were doing everything from a clean sheet of paper. Was Super Touring the finest of margins in terms of the competitiveness? In terms of, you know, if you were, you know, this amount off, you were miles away in your entire career. Was that the closest racing? Yeah, it was because if you look at every generation of Super Touring car throughout the 90s right through to 2000, every single year they got faster. So if you'd rocked up with one of last year's cars, you'd you'd have been nowhere. That doesn't happen today. You know, you can run a car today that's 
well, four or five years old and still be competitive. So it was the pace of development that was the staggering thing. And that was because we didn't have control parts. You know, differentials, dampers, everything was free. So you people were finding incremental benefits year on year. So that, for me, was the most competitive element of it, that it just got better every year. You also had... Uh the excitement of a trip down to Australia, didn't you, for the, for the Bathurst 1000, uh, which there are a lot of politics going on behind the scenes with the Australian TV networks, and, uh, and Alan Gow managed to get the race for Super Touring in 97 and 98. So how much of an adventure was that, and how, uh, um, you know, how, how good was it? I, personally, I really liked it. I enjoyed it because it was, uh, I, I met uh, Alan Jones, you know, the former Formula One uh, racing driver. Uh, he was driving the second car. Uh, for Williams there and a really nice guy and we got invited to his place and I, I discovered like a Bundy rum, Bundy rum. <laughs> and I, he said you know Alan what, what would you like to drink I said I don't know what have you got Bundy rum what's that uh, anyway so that was really good so I discovered so that guy got me into uh, drinking which was uh, unfortunate but the track there is fantastic it's one of the best uh, tracks there is or oh, that I've driven on for sure um, and you know, like the the Williams Renault was uh, was very competitive. We uh, I missed out on pole by uh, just a tiny bit, tiny margin. Uh, and then in the race we were leading, I think. And then we had an issue. We had to change like uh, discs or I don't know. So we we fell back. And then the diff ended up packing up. I think uh, I was driving at the time. So so I think Jason was quite happy to say that I broke the car. But uh, I said that he did the way he was driving. He was too hard on it. Uh, you remember at the top, at the top actually, that track is fantastic. Um, it's, it's quick, it's blind over the crest, and then you go down, and you have like a tight uh, right, and then a very tight left in first gear, but there is a dip there. And you could easily like spin the wheels, and then obviously when the grip, you get the grip back, then it, it puts like massive strain on the transmission. So I was very careful to go in second gear and like go smooth over it, and I, I doubt that Jason uh, did that, so, because we knew the car was fragile. Yeah. Uh, for like a long distance. But anyway, it was a very nice event and Australian people are really nice. Not as nice as English, but almost. <laughs> uh, so it was really, I really enjoyed it. And I went back several times since. Yeah. And you, you went uh, back to the Volvo lineup for that, didn't I did you? The, the first year I did yeah. it with Peugeot, um, with Neil Crompton actually, who's the current commentator. Um, that's when I discovered that Australian racing drivers have a completely different language to UK uh, racing drivers or anywhere else in the world. So I'm listening in on the radio and he's out in practice and the engineer says to Neil, he says, so how's the car feeling, Neil? And he goes, she's feeling kind of lazy. What does that mean? Does that mean you've got oversteer, understeer? What, what does that mean? So we had to sort of come in and debrief about what, what that meant. And, and when he came in and, and he, they were saying, you know, where are you? And he goes, I'm in tech. I'm in tech. What the hell's he? I'm in tech. And he meant he was in the scrutineering bay. Uh, <laughs> this went on all throughout the meeting, you know, totally different racing language. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed that. I, I, like Alan said, the, the track is absolutely fantastic. It's a, a beautiful track. And I've been, uh, it's been a pleasure to go back and race GTs and things there, but I did it first year with, um, with Peugeot and then the second year with, um, with Volvo in the S40. That didn't end up quite so well, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, there was, a, was an oil slick was dropped at the top of the mountain, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, it was a week before my wedding and um, we were going really well, actually. And after the long mountain section, there's a fast left called McPhillamy's 
and a small two-litre car or something had gone off on the left and hit the wall and left a drive shaft and CV joints lying in the road. And then there was a chain of the five of us, the first five cars. And the first car was one of the Audis and he saw it and moved to the left. The second car ran over it and took the sump off and all the oil fell out as we got to the braking area to go over the top into the dipper. And so myself and Greg Murphy, who's here this weekend, just plowed straight off on the, uh, on the oil. Greg went in first and hit all the tires in front of the concrete wall and neatly moved them out the way. I followed him in on exactly the same line and went straight into the concrete wall. This was one of those sudden thud where everything goes a little bit chilled and you wriggle your arms and legs and make sure everything's working. But the worst thing was for, and you gentlemen in the audience will appreciate this, the crutch strap had done myself a bit of an injury to the crown jewels. And I got taken off to um, the Bathurst Memorial Hospital where a very kindly nurse put me out of my misery by performing what she called a manual manipulation. It resulted in, um, in my crown jewels looking like a huge pair of Victoria Blums. And this was a week before my wedding. So I walked down the aisle a week, seven days later, sort of looking like John Wayne, really. <laughs> it wasn't the way it was supposed to end. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. During the period, I'd, I'd like to know who you thought were the toughest drivers in the Super Touring era and why. Like, a bit, I just think it's interesting. To be honest, there were like so many good drivers, you know, over the years in the in the BTCC Super Touring eras that it's it's hard to pinpoint one. But you know, the the the, the toughest. I'm not sure what you mean by toughest. You know, uh, I think maybe one the, of the, the hardest to race against. Yeah, or? one of the yeah, but one of the best one I think for me, and I'm sure Tim will agree, uh, is Ricard. You know, Rydell. Rydell was like, uh, he was really good. He was like good in every every situation, you know, race, uh, qualifying. Some people like John Clelland says he was not good at starting, but I'm not sure that was Ricard's problem, to be honest. I think it was whatever he had. And he used to be he used to be very quick in qualifying when they had Dunlop tires, but then in the race, people said, oh, he can only qualify, but the tires were not as good. So anyway, I think Ricard uh, probably one of the best. Uh, but as in like hard racers, Maybe John Cleland actually was quite hard, but like in a in a clever way, and because he was quite political, he was one who was political, and he was he was trying to be friend with like uh, you know like the 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 Stewarts and you know Alan Gow and blah blah blah. So he got away with murder, to be honest. But um, <laughs> but great guy, John. At the time, you know, we didn't get on him and I. But again, then you retire and then you realize that in fact, oh, you know, you're a nice guy. Oh, so are you. <laughs> so, um, you know, he's actually, he's a really great character. But yeah, it's hard to like, uh, there were loads of like uh, good drivers. You know, even Tim on his day was like uh, a pain. <laughs> he was a pain in the bum. Listen, I'll, I'll tell you something. I mean, I, I had the privilege of mentoring uh, the BRDC's Superstar program for 11 years, which is the creme de la creme of British talent from 2011 to 2018. And these are fantastic drivers. You know, the last year I did it, saw George, George Russell, Lando Norris, Alex Albon all graduate to F1 the next year. I'm not taking any credit for that, but BRDC played a small part in their careers. But it gave me a great opportunity to see all the best drivers really close up. And you know what? There's an awful lot of drivers that fit into what I call the very good bubble. And on their day, they can win and beat anybody else. But there's only a few drivers in the really exceptional bubble, which is the you know, Max Verstappens, Lewis Hamiltons of this world. And they're the ones that can win almost all the time, even when you know they haven't got the best car or setup or anything else. 
And, you know, I, I think you're right to single out, you know, I would single out Alan as, as, as an exceptional driver. I was very unfortunate in my teammate choice. I had Alan, I had Ricard, <laughs> and Steve Soper. Um, you know, I, I would honestly say myself, I was in the very good group. I could win on the day, and I could beat everybody, but I wasn't as exceptional as those guys were. Um, you would never obviously say it at the time, but I can say it looking back, and that's why I don't have any sort of, you know, recriminations about my career. I'm very glad what I achieved. But, you know, cer certain drivers just had that little bit extra. And I mean, you singled out Ricard, and when I was teammates with Ricard at Volvo, you know, we used to test all the time. We'd be testing all the time. We had a test team and a test car. And whenever we were testing, I could match his lap times. And I'd think, right, I'm, I'm really there. You know, we, we're, we're going to be dicing for pole or whatever it would be. And every time in qualifying, he would find another tenth or two tenths. I would match the best time we'd ever done, and I'd think that's good enough. But somehow he would always find another tenth or two from nowhere. And that was the mark of a really exceptional driver for me, anyway. Obviously, these cars, these super touring cars, how do you think the current crop of British touring car drivers would go in these today? Well, I'm obviously quite well placed to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I can honestly tell you that... The top drivers now, Ash Sutton, Tom Ingram, Jake Hill, they would all be capable of holding their own at any period that we, we were racing. 100% they would have been. Um, they are absolutely brilliant at what they do. Um, the difference was that back in our day, we had 18 drivers like that. You know, Now you've probably got 8, 10 at the most. Um, and, you know, you look back at the entry list of Super Touring, it was an international championship. You know, it, the, the entry list was like a who's who of the world's touring car elite, wasn't it? And, um, yeah, so it was, a, it was an exceptional period for driver talent. But the top drivers today could have done it at any point. Yeah. You know, Tim mentioned uh, Ash Sutton. For me, that guy is, is outstanding, really. I, I think he's... Uh, I think he's like above anybody else. I, uh, you know, I, I did a bit of coaching in 2016 or 17. I can't remember when it was. His first year in um, in um, it was BMR, wasn't it? Was it? No, no, yeah, no, no. Before before that, no, no, in the MG or whatever he was driving. Oh, okay, yeah, he was yeah, in the yeah, MG anyway. Triple Eight. Yeah, yeah Triple Eight, exactly. And that Croft in the wet, he he he, he, had, he had an outstanding race. He came from I don't know where, he overtook everybody. And at the time I was in the pits and I was looking at it on the TV and, and I, I thought, could you do that to myself? And my answer was like, no, I could not do it. And then I thought, could you have done it like in the 97 or 98? And I wasn't sure. And it's that day I realized, and then he's proved me right because that guy is really, I, I think this guy could be, uh, could be driving anything anywhere and he would be uh, right at the top. So, so definitely a super touring, he would have been, uh, he would have been the Ricard Rydell of uh, the 90, 1990s for sure. Yeah. Tim's mentioned Ricard as a teammate. Of course, you did as well, didn't you, in the last year of Super Touring? So when you won the championship for the yeah, and you know Ricard, we first we first came across mm. each other in 1988 in Formula Three, um, and then uh, 89. Then he went to Japan. Mm. Then I got into touring cars. Then he came in touring cars in 94. I think it was BTCC. Um, then we were teammates, like you said, in 2000. And then also in the Ferrari, you know, we did Le Mans and uh, we did a few races together as teammates in 2001, two and four. And uh, so I know also from inside, you know, how, how good uh, that guy is. Plus he's a nice guy to, to go with it, you know. So, uh, so yeah, we go back a long, long time, uh, Ricard and I. And, and uh, yes, I can, I can confirm that to have him as a teammate is, uh, is not easy. It's nice, <laughs> but it's not easy. <laughs> 
Well, I think that we, we've got to wrap it up there, but thank you, Tim and Alan, for coming up. Thank you to listening. Um, it's been fantastic to talk to you guys. Thank you. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.